0: And so one night I said, okay, Lord, if you're real, let me know. Give me some sign. Well, about four o'clock in the morning, I was getting pretty sleepy (laughs) and there had not been any sign. (laughs) And so I said, okay, Lord, I don't need dramatics. And that's when it happened.
1: I'm Adira Polite, and this is Then God Moved. Hey, I'm here. You're here. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm great. I'm so excited to be here with you. So, so excited. I have my whole collection, all of your books. You're oh. <laughs> cool. So excited. So far, listeners, I am sitting here on Zoom with Professor Nancy Piercy. She is a former agnostic who has now become somewhat of a Christian elite intellectual. She is a trusted voice on many, many issues surrounding cultural Christianity and the church's response to the culture. So the first book I purchased of yours is Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity. You have also authored a book called Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And today we're also going to talk about your newest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. So you are what some might call a controversial figure. You're one who is able to anger all sides, the secular world, the Christian world. You're calling everybody out. And that's something that I love about you. But first, I would love to talk about how I was connected to you, which is through Maybe God, hosted by Eric Huffman. So I was helping to produce your episode. I think it was... While Julie, the lead producer, was emailing your son that the idea came to her mind, like, hey, dear, you should try to interview her on Then God Moved. And that's how this all came about. So thank you so much for being here. I'm stoked to be talking to you.
0: Well, thank you. And I'm glad you connected to Maybe God. That was a fun interview. I enjoyed talking to Eric.
1: Yeah, Eric is incredible. I would love to talk about first your upbringing some of the wounds that kind of shaped your early view of God. If you could share a bit about how you grew up, your family life, and your early thoughts on the Christian church.
0: Yeah, so I was raised in a Lutheran home. I don't know if you know, but all Scandinavians are Lutheran. Uh, (laughs) The same way all Irish are Catholic. So my mom's Norwegian, my dad's Swedish. The problem with an ethnic religion is sometimes parents rely more on the ethnicity to hold their kids. And so there wasn't a lot of real strong personal commitment Mm. in the way I was raised. But the thing that I mentioned in this book in particular, that my father was severely physically abusive. And uh, in books on abuse, they will sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And it was closed fist with Mm. a a knuckle fist, the knuckle Mm -hmm. finger extended to make a sharper stab of pain. So, yeah, it was, he was punching, he was kicking. And so when I started asking questions in, in high school about my Christian upbringing, not surprisingly, I ricocheted off into extreme feminism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I read all the major feminist books and, and loved them. I thought they were great. I always had one feminist book on my bedside table <laughs> going at all times. Your Bible. <laughs> well, along with the Bible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> along with the Bible at that age.
0: Well, when I, so as I left my faith behind, I became a really strong feminist. Okay. And so I gave up my faith in high school and started on a search for truth and pretty much absorbed all kinds of secular isms. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened to run across the Ministry of Francis Schaefer. Uh, which is an apologetics ministry. It's in Switzerland. We had lived in Europe when I was a child. My dad had a job over there. And then as a result, I kind of stumbled across Francis Schaeffer's ministry, which is in Switzerland. I had never encountered apologetics before. Mm-hmm. So I was just blown away. I had no idea Christianity could be defended by good mm-hmm. reasons and arguments <laughs> right. and that it had actual answers to the, all of these secular worldviews mm-hmm. that I had absorbed by that time. And And I tell that story in a couple of my books. But what I haven't told before on staff was a psychiatric social worker. Her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. She's the one who told me, you know, you really need to get emotional healing from mm. the trauma of your childhood. When I left home, I thought I could just wipe it out, right? I was going to create a blank slate. Right. My my childhood was so painful, I thought, I'm going to recreate myself from scratch. Mm. And she's Birdie's the one who told me, actually, it doesn't work that way.
1: Right. <laughs> Thank you, Birdie. <laughs>
0: You do have to go back through all of the, the, the pain of your childhood and, and apply God's love. I mean, the mm-hmm. b- bottom line is to work through to such a, such a deep, transformative experience of God's love that you know love heals. Love mm-hmm. is really the only thing that truly heals emotional right. wounds. I mean, we know that to some degree in human experiences. For me, Birdie was the first person. I had never experienced love like that before. And so because of Bertie, though, I was able to sense better what God's love was like. In fact, when I first left LaBrie, my prayers were almost like, how would you talk to Bertie? Okay, talk to God like that. Mm, yeah,
1: right. The
0: <laughs> talk, to him like, yes, exactly. talk to him like he's your therapist. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> I mean, true. I just was editing an episode. Someone was talking about God as counselor. And the word tells us God is wonderful counselor. And that's for a reason, because it's very true. God can get right to the root of things that might take you know, years in therapy, God can just cut right through and get to the point. It's incredible. Exactly,
0: and and, and therapy is good for telling you what's wrong, but you know, right. the solution is love. You know, mm-hmm. it's just experiencing God's love, and you know, you may may take a while to get there, but that's the goal: is to have such an experience of God's love that it heals all the emotional wounds. Right, right. So, in a sense, I say in my book, um, I've been I've been writing this book all my life, in the sense that I've had to take my whole life to work through a mm-hmm. positive healthy, biblical view of masculinity. Right. I was thinking just now,
1: like, how does someone who is abused by a father figure at that young age, abused by the person who's obviously meant to protect you, whose mission as a man is to protect the women in their midst, how do you then become someone who speaks back to what you once believed, which is that all men are toxic, you know, we don't need them. How do you then become a champion for godly masculinity when you didn't see it?
0: You know, I think some of it was after calling myself a feminist for many years, I did begin to see that feminism had become extremely hostile Mm. to men. The Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Mm. And I thought, really? The Washington Post? Uh, A Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag kill all men. You can buy t-shirts now that say, so Many Men, So Little Ammunition. Oh, wow. And books have come out with you know, very bluntly saying things like uh, titles, like I Hate Men and mm. No Good Men. And, <laughs> Are men necessary? So this, is, this started to catch my eye that, you know, this is going overboard. I have to tell you, <laughs> I, had, I had stopped calling myself a feminist. I remained a feminist after I became a Christian, after I became married, <laughs> And by the way, eventually I found out there was something called pro-life feminism. Have you heard of that one? I have, I have actually. That's good. So that was my first, my first shift. I said, okay, okay, I'm starting to become aware that there's something wrong with abortion. Mm-hmm. You know, I, really, I was a, I was married, I was attending seminary. I had my first child, and I still hadn't worked out mm-hmm. the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, in fact, it was Francis Schaefer again who helped me with this because he had uh, presentations on abortion, and that's when I finally started realizing, oh. There are good, credible intellectual reasons um, mm. to be against abortion. Mm. And so first I first, I shifted to pro-life feminism. But then I can tell you the exact moment when I stopped calling myself a feminist. Like I said, I always had some book. I always had some book from the library on feminism. And I was reading Nancy Friday's book, which is called My, My Mother Myself. Okay. And it's all about, instead of your father being oppressive, you know, your mother's evil and oppressive, mm-hmm. More sort of a Freudian idea, right, where the mother's always at fault. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, if you had problem X, it's because, you, you know, your mother did this. And if you had the opposite problem, it's because your mother did that. Mm-hmm. And I got about halfway through and I thought, she's not giving any solutions. This book is all about blaming somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking very distinctly, I'm tired of being a victim. That was the thought that came to me. I'm tired of being a victim. Yeah. I didn't finish the book, and that's when I actually stopped calling myself a feminist.
1: Wow. Do you feel feminism is is the foundation of that is a victim mentality?
0: Well, of course it there's so many forms of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Because there was an, an early form of feminism with people like Eliz- Elizabeth Cady Stain- Stanton, and they were all pro-life, for example because abortion was starting to be more common back then in their day. So they had to take a stand on abortion and the early feminists, the first wave feminists were against abortion and they were, they were in favor of uh, you know, promoting policies that supported the family. You know why we had Sunday laws? Not because of Christians, you know, wanting, wanting Sunday to be sanctified. It was because of fathers. After the industrial revolution, well back up, before the industrial revolution, Men worked with their wives and family all day, right, on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so fathers were deeply integrated into their family. Historians tell us that men spent just as much time with their children as Mm -hmm. mothers did, which is really strange to us today. Right. In fact, here's a fun historical note. The literature on child-rearing, on parenting, was addressed to fathers, not mothers.
1: Wow. As the heads of household, right?
0: Right. 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 Today, if you go to a typical bookstore, most of the books on parenting are written to mothers. Right. But back then, they were written to fathers. Yes, mm-hmm. fathers were thought to be the primary parent. After the Industrial Revolution, well, it takes work out of the home. And so, of course, men had to follow the work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, men are not working with family members, people that they love and have a moral bond with. They're working as individuals in competition with other men. Mm. And that's when you start to see the language change because people were saying men are changing, Mm -hmm. you know, they're losing that caretaking ethos, you know, when they worked from home with their families and they're starting to become become individualistic, self-centered, egocentric, look out for number one, you know, make it in the workplace at all costs you even see the language of idol, that men were starting to turn their career into an idol. Mm. A- and so... When was the last time we had that conversation? I know, I, I, right. And so this was the first time. 19th mm-hmm. century, it was already happening. Many of the early feminists were very concerned about the loss of fathers. You know, they, they started writing things like, fathers are not visible to their children all week, you know, just on Sundays. Mm. You know, the leading psychologist of the day said, never in American history has the American boy been so wild, so wild because he no longer had his father's supervision, mm-hmm. discipline. And never before has the American boy been so half orphaned, half orphaned, you know, because their dads weren't there anymore. And he said, boys are now being raised by, by women in the home, in the school, in the church. And so the, the Sunday blue laws, which is how he got onto this, it was to give fathers a day with their families, Wow, that is <laughs> they they argued for shorter work weeks so that fathers had more time at home. They argued for a family wage, which meant paying fathers more so they could not wouldn't have to work such long hours. And they argued for Sundays off so that fathers could have more time with their children, wow, wow.
1: So back to the you realizing that you no longer identified as a feminist, and that being because you decided I will not be a victim, the feminism that you were a part of at that time, would you describe that as being? predicated on victimhood of some sort?
0: Yeah, so it's more of a second wave feminism. Uh, so the first wave is what we just discussed back in the 19th century. The second wave was more like Betty Friedan. The one thing I began to notice is that every every time I read one of my books on feminism, even though I love them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: as I always ended up angry. Mm. <laughs> I noticed this that they always made me angry because I was always being told, you know, things are unfair, you know, society is oppressive, men in particular are these, you know, overbearing, domineering patriarchs? I was always—I'd I'd finish a book and I'd be angry at my husband for a couple of days, <laughs> and and I knew why. You know, the overarching theme was not on solutions. The overarching theme tended to be, you know, the victim oppressive, the, the victim oppressor kind mm-hmm. of uh, narrative. Right. I think was and and certainly more with Marxist feminism, which is a lot of feminism. You mm-hmm. know, it, it takes its its um, sort of interpretive scheme largely from Marxism. Marxism is sometimes called uh, it's cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism mm-hmm. because you know, classic Marxism was economic theory. So it's the proletariat and the capitalist. But people pretty soon figured out, you know, you could apply the same categories to virtually any group. You can apply it to race, class, gender. Sexual orientation, and of course, male and female. You can apply it to almost any group and come up with an uh, with an oppression narrative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I did think I did start to feel as if, even though I, 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 you know, I I admit I I love these books, Mm -hmm. but I did notice that I was developing, you know, a victim mentality that you know society is full of evil, angry, oppressive men, and I was ready to start talking about solutions instead. I was really ready to get past that. Okay, fine, we've got problems, but what do we do about it? And so that that was kind of the shift in my mindset.
1: Right. And it sounds like from what you've written, the solution has been given to us by God. The solution time and time again goes back to God. So I'm curious about your conversion moment. We've kind of danced around it, but at what point did you come to recognize that the God you grew up with, that had maybe been re- misrepresented in various ways, was the true God?
0: Yeah, so I went to Labrie, and you have to understand that Labrie was, it was kind of a um, Christian community. What happened is that um Schaeffer, Schaefer, who, you know, always did he was always known for his apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he did was called cultural apologetics. It was a little different. It wasn't like just, you know, um making arguments in the logical ether, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, these very abstract arguments. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't arguments either for like the historicity of the Bible, you know, the historicity of the resurrection. It was called cultural apologetics because he was looking at ideas as they percolate down through cultural forms like art and literature and movies and music. Mm -hmm. I never heard that before either. I love that.
1: Wait, first, how did you end up there as a (laughs) non-Christian?
0: Yeah, that's what everyone says. (laughs) Well, first, I was in Germany because, like I said, we lived there when I was a child. Right. And I had gone back, but I had no interest in going to a Christian ministry. But I had some family members who were traveling through. My, my father had been teaching in Ankara, Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, at the Middle East Technical University right before the, before the military coup. Mm-hmm. And all the Westerners were told, you need to get out, it is too dangerous. And, and they were traveling across Europe to get to the cheap Luxembourg flights. There were this special flights out of Luxembourg at the time. And so one of their friends said, look, if you're gonna be driving through Switzerland, you need to stop at this Christian place. And so they stopped with kind of a tourist mentality, right? Oh, let's see what Libri is, you know, <laughs> because like I said, they were not strong Christians. Mm-hmm. But hey, my dad was a good tourist. So he wrote to me and said, um, come on down. We're going to stop at this place in Switzerland. So why don't you come on down and see us? So that's why I went to Labrie, okay, not to well. see Labrie, not to go to a Christian ministry, but to see my parents before they went back to the States, because then I wouldn't be seeing them for a while. Um, but when I arrived, they had special um, discussion groups for people who are short-term visitors so that they could get sort of to the heart of Schaefer's form of apologetics, you know, the kind of concentrated discussion groups. And it was very clear I was not a Christian, you know, from the questions I was asking. And back then, Labrie was very non-structured. And the way it grew is that as other couples, many of them converted through Labrie, they would say, we'd like to help you in this ministry. And they would buy a house down the street and open their home. Wow. And so it was a ministry where you would actually live in somebody's home. And it had that ethos, you know, it was not an institutional ethos. It, mm-hmm. it had that feeling of actually living with a Christian family. And so an awful lot of people said what persuaded them of Christianity was not just the apologetics, although mm-hmm. that was important, but seeing a quality of love and Christian community that they'd never seen anywhere else. You know, Hospitality. Yeah. The gift really. of hospitality, really. And and I would say that was true for me, too. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was impressed. You know, these guys weren't just talking the talk. You know, they really were living it out where you could mm-hmm. live with them. And, you know, a Christian celebrity can fly into a conference and he's a talking head at the podium. But you don't know what he's really like mm-hmm. <laughs> with his family, with his mm-hmm. secretary. <laughs> but we saw Francis Schaeher, what he was really like, and he was authentic. So the turning point for me was that I had absorbed secular worldviews back up when i was in high school the reason i left my faith is because i couldn't get any answers Mm. i'm my father already so i'll I'll use him as an example i asked him point blank why are you christian he said works for me and i said interesting that's it (laughs) you know he's a university professor Mm. and i had a chance to talk to um, a seminary dean one of my uncles but I thought, <laughs> a seminary dean, I should get something more substantial. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Mm. As if it was a psychological phase that I would outgrow. And so when I was about 16, I very intentionally said, well, if I don't have good reasons for this, I shouldn't say I believe it. You know, whether it was Christianity or anything, mm. it felt like a matter of intellectual honesty. And that's how I got interested in philosophy, by the way. It wasn't an academic interest, but I literally started going to the library I'm pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, if I can't get any adults in my life to answer my questions, yeah. maybe these philosophers can, these dead guys, right? <laughs> That's their job. They're supposed to answer questions like, what is truth and how do we know it? And is there meaning to life? Uh, is there a foundation for ethics? Or is it just true for me, true for you? And I realized pretty quickly, if, if there was no God, the answer was no. Right. You know, there was no meaning to life. There was no foundation for ethics. If all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope, Mm-hmm. of time and space and history. What makes me think I could know any sort of universal, transcendent, objective truth? Right. Ridiculous. Yeah. Right. That's how I thought of it. Ridiculous. So I had absorbed the you know, sort of skepticism, relativism, uh, determinism. Of course, I never met, met any Christians who even connected with those kind of thoughts until I went to Brie. And so really, the the turning point came be, is because I, I worked through them, you know, with the staff at Labrie. They knew the questions better than I did, because they had studied these isms. Mm-hmm. And so they could say, well, here's what's wrong with relativism. Here's why it doesn't work. You know, here's what's wrong with determinism. Here's why it doesn't work. And they, they literally just went through the isms with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I was there, I, I once talked to a, a young man from South Africa. You know, it was very international. And I asked him, well, why did you become a Christian? I was, you know, I was a little bit combative. And he said, well, they shot down all my views. I thought, that's it? (laughs) But, you know, in essence, that's what it was for me, too. They shot down all my isms Mm. and showed that Christianity had better answers. And I did not actually become a Christian at Libri precisely because it was so attractive that I thought I might be drawn in for emotional reasons. Mm -hmm. It was so appealing I'm not going to be brainwashed by you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. and a part of it was Christianity let me down once before. Mm. You know, I'm not going to be drawn back in mm. unless I'm intellectually convinced it's true. And so I left Libri after only a month. But because of Libri, I discovered apologetics, right? And so just in the quiet of my own bedroom one day, I thought, you know, I am intellectually convinced enough you could study this your whole life but I've read enough to be convinced that it you can make a good case for Christianity yes just sort of intellectually I said okay I guess it's I guess it's true do you remember
1: any of the things like do you remember what those final arguments were that made you say okay fine you got me
0: well you know well you would laugh at this I also wanted something that was real you know and so I was reading the cross and the switchblade the cross and the switchblade is Dave Wilkinson. He was one of the first Christians ever to go into the inner city and talk to drug addicts, really difficult, down and out drug addicts and so on. And so I read one of his books and thought, oh, okay, this isn't just intellectual. Mm. This has real power Mm -hmm. in the real world, you know, with real people who are suffering things like addiction and homelessness. So it really took that final push of seeing Mm -hmm. that it's real. It works in the real world as well. Yes. Isn't that interesting? It yes. took that final push.
1: I love that, though, because that's a good reminder. Like, I think a lot of us, you know, especially growing up hearing Jesus died for your sins, like it almost becomes empty words because we've heard it so many times. And it's like it's easy, especially for us who are privileged to not really rest in that or to 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 make claims of the kingdom of darkness and say, legally, I deserve what has been taken for me. But those who are homeless, you know, drug addicts, many have these dramatic testimonies of overcoming these things by the power of the blood of Christ, because they've asked because they they've leaned into what has been made possible by that resurrection. So I think it's, I think it's awesome that you saw there's real tangible change that is rooted in Christ.
0: Exactly. Uh, You know, and so one night I said, okay, Lord, if you're real, let me know. I thought (laughs) maybe, maybe this works better with something very dramatic. (laughs) Give me some sign. Yeah. Well, about four o'clock in the morning, I was getting pretty sleepy, <laughs> and there had not been any sign. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I said, "Okay, that's kind of silly, isn't it?" You know. And so I said, "Okay, Lord, I don't need dramatics." And that's when it happened. Of course. That, that's of when course. it happened. I suddenly had a, a, a powerful sense of God's presence that just you know engulfed me and gave me a sense of His love and presence and reality. And so there was there was that supernatural. Mm-hmm. element as well that <laughs> that I d- I couldn't deny you know now God is really you know actually here in my life as well right. I don't tell that story very often because I feel a little bit foolish <laughs> <laughs> staying up until four o'clock waiting mm-hmm. for a sign but God did step in and, yeah. and answer my prayer absolutely
1: isn't it interesting that it was at the moment of surrender that it happened also that's fascinating <laughs>
0: yeah, once you said yeah.
1: okay okay fine have it your way he said oh okay we'll do it your way <laughs> well i would love to get into love thy body first i identified as bisexual starting at maybe age 12 Mm -hmm. and a big part of why i left the church was because of homophobia like i i was like okay many christians are saying things that that make me feel that i cannot be a part of the church to this day i struggle a lot with the homophobia in the church which i would define as the ostracization of people who are struggling with same-sex attraction to be clear I don't believe that stating God's word is true is homophobia. But I left the church because of that. And I have a special heart, I would say, towards those who are in that community. And I love Love Thy Body because it really gets to the root of what I would call an agenda. And I know that that's triggering to a lot of people, the idea that there is a gay agenda or a trans agenda. But to me, it's very, very clear. And what I love about this book is that you tie... You don't talk about homosexuality in a vacuum. You don't talk about transgenderism in a vacuum or as things that just spontaneously popped up. But you see them as connected to other issues such as abortion and euthanasia. You see them as all being rooted on the same sort of low view of the body worldview. I would love for you to walk us through what that dehumanizing worldview is. Like what, first of all, is a high or low view of the body? What is the sort of spectrum? And what are the consequences of a low view of the body?
0: Yeah, so the the questions have shifted. People are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? How do I answer that? Well, I answer that by turning the tables. Hmm. I actually show that it's a secular view that is harmful and demeaning because it's, harmful, it's demeaning to the body. And, you know, it's easiest if we just jump in where it's most obvious, which is transgenderism, hmm. because Transgender activists say explicitly, your gender identity has nothing to do with your body, your mm-hmm. biology, mm-hmm. You know, that your biology is not part of your authentic self. Right. So there's a BBC documentary in which the, the sort of the tagline is that your mind can be at war with your body. And in that war, of course, it's the mind that wins. Right. Oh, there's another BBC documentary aimed at teenagers and this young girl. She's obviously a girl, but she identifies as non-binary. And she says... It doesn't matter what, this is her words, it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in, it's your feelings that count. So the Mm -hmm. body's been demeaned to a meat skeleton. I did read a a book by a Princeton University professor, because my job is to read what the academics say, because that's what filters down to ordinary people eventually. What was interesting about this Princeton professor is, on the one hand, she acknowledged that transgenderism involves self disconnect self-alienation, self-estrangement. I thought, wait, that's a defense? <laughs> Sounds mm-hmm. more, more like a critique. Mm-hmm. Those are the things I say in critique, right? That it, you know, it's, it's, it's disintegrating the person from their body. And then she said, but that's okay, because, and here's her exact words, what the real body, real is in quotes, she means the physical body, mm-hmm. what the physical body tells us is nothing. It has no meaning at all. Oh, wow. I thought, well, that captures it. That's yeah. at the heart of the transgender ideology. It's that your body has no meaning. You know, it's, a, it's raw material that can be manipulated, changed, you know, altered. When Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, even people who don't know philosophy usually know that one. What he was saying is what defines me is how I think, is mm-hmm. my mind. And he thought the body was just a complex machine that the mind operates, a little bit like you drive your car. And so the body has been demoted to sort of a utilitarian you know, hunk of matter that, that we can use for our own purposes. Then it's a little harder to see with homosexuality, but I think you can find the same basic worldview there. And here's how I would unpack it. Even my homosexual friends agree. And I hope you have homosexual friends. I do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I lost many. <laughs> <laughs> so even my homosexual friends agree that on the level of biology, physiology, chromosomes, anatomy, Males and females are counterparts to one another. You know, that is how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. Right. To embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is, t- is to contradict that design. It's to say you know, implicitly, well, why should my body inform my identity? Well, why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? And so we have to help people to see that actually is a very disrespectful view of the body. It's, it's basically saying my feelings, all that counts. Let me give you an example from um, a, a fairly well-known public intellectual who, who identifies as a lesbian. You may know her. Do you know Camille Paglia? I don't. Usually uh, I run into Christians who know her because she's a bit of an iconocl- iconoclastic feminist mm. um, because she does not think sex and gender is just a social construction. She says, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. I have a quote from her. She literally says, uh, sexed bodies are designed reproduction which is a a somewhat of an odd word for an atheist to use (laughs) wonder i'm like is this nature with a capital n or lowercase yeah it's almost like she's treating it with n but uh, almost like it's a nature of personified right anthropomorphized then how does she defend being a lesbian and here's how she puts it so nature made us male and female but why not define nature This is a direct quote. That's a direct quote. And then this is to, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. The logic, though, is if our bodies are a product of mindless, purposeless Mm -hmm. forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. They give us no clue to identity. Mm -hmm. They give us no moral message. And so we can do with them as we see fit. Right. And so the answer to that, of course, um, is to say that the Christian view is nature does have a purpose. It does have a design yeah. that uh, even, even science is on our side here because it's evident to observation mm-hmm. that living things are structured for a purpose, that eyes are for seeing, ears are for hearing, fins are for swimming and wings are for flying. In fact, mm-hmm. the entire development of the organism is directed by an inbuilt plan, a blueprint, That's mm-hmm. the DNA And that when we live in harmony with that blueprint, we will be happier and we will be healthier. Yeah. So that that gives us a positive way to present the message.
1: Right. If I'm a non-believer listening to this, I wonder if there is any argument against these apart from admitting to a higher power. Like, are there consequences for everyone to this sort of low view of the body outside of the Christian worldview?
0: Well, in my book, I do deal with other areas. It comes up in abortion and euthanasia. Because um, in abortion, secular bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that in order to support abortion if they're secular people? They'll say, well, the fetus is biologically human, physiologically human, genetically human, but it's not a person. Mm. And personhood is usually defined in terms of something mental, mental capabilities, you know, self-awareness, consciousness, even things like a sense of the future, you know, sense of wanting to live. Different bioethicists will draw the line in a different place. But it's that same body-mind divide. Do you mm-hmm. see that? They, they also are saying, your body doesn't really matter. I don't care if you're biologically human. That does not give you any moral standing. That, that does not warrant legal protection. Mm-hmm. So what they're saying is, the human body is worthless. It's meaningless. In mm-hmm. fact, it can be um, tinkered with genetically. It can, be, it can be thrown out with the other medical waste. And, and actually, that's how the medical journals describe the body of the fetus is medical waste. Really? Yeah. Again, it's a denigration of the body. Right. And the idea that the only thing this counts is, you know, the, the mental part of you. I think, therefore, I am. You mental, you're, you mind your emotions and so on. It's the same divide. And of Mm. course, euthanasia is the same thing in reverse. If you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person. And they actually use that language, no longer a person. Used to be a person, Mm. but now it's only a body. And when it's only a body, well, then you can pull the plug, you can discontinue food and water, you can start taking the organs out. When you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, you don't become an alien species, you're still human. Mm -hmm. But you have no human rights. Mm. That's, I think, where the broader issue is. Being human is no longer enough for human rights. So being human is no longer enough for human rights because that's you, know, you and I would say anyone who's biologically human is a person.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we used "person" <laughs> to mean you know any human being. Mm. Well, now in secular discourse, they'll say no, you can be human but not a person. And so you're not part of the language they use is you're not part of the moral community. That Mm -hmm. means the people that were morally responsible to take care of. And then I even I even draw connections to the hookup culture. And I show how the hookup culture is dependent on dividing off the person from their body. But isn't that the whole point of casual sex is the idea that you can be involved with someone physically and have no connection to them? In mm-hmm. t- terms of on the personal level, mm-hmm. you know, your your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions. The whole assumption of the hookup culture is that you can be completely divided, cut off. I quote college students in my book, like Alicia, who said, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. Mm-hmm. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Yeah. So all of these issues rest on a denigration of the body saying that the body has no importance has no value no dignity which of course means christians have a wonderful opportunity mm-hmm. to come in with a positive message and say you know the entire christian worldview and all of it, the biblical ethic is based on valuing the body and saying it does have meaning and value and significance right. and our, our approach to people should be one that really expresses that you know that not just in words but in the way we approach them expressing our high view of, of them you know, as as physically embodied beings, you know, they have great dignity and worth. Right, right.
1: Such a fascinating connection also between Toxic War Masculinity, which is dealing with these ideas of how are men harming our world rather than this question of what is the responsibility God has placed on men and how can we help them to live out that responsibility? Many of these issues, if you really ask the question, who is this benefiting? Who is this ideology benefiting? Often it is men. With hookup culture, with abortion, often it is men. (laughs) If we want to talk about toxic masculinity, let's really talk about these things. Anyway, I could go on all day about that. But
0: yeah, yeah. You know, there's um, a psychiatrist who works on a college campus. And she said, um, the two most prescribed medications on the college campus are birth control pills and antidepressants. Mm. and She said, "That's not a coincidence." Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> yeah, they're they're trying to live out a secular ethic that just does not match who they really are. Right. Um, and and even science shows that. You know, uh, we've discovered that sexual activity releases bonding hormones. You know, mm-hmm. oxytocin mm-hmm. and vasopressin. They're right. called bonding hormones because they create a sense of attachment and trust and yeah. relationship. And so, there's a UCLA campus uh, psychiatrist who wrote a book, and she said. You might say we are designed to bond. I love that phrase. (laughs) Again, you know, as far as I know, she's a secular psychiatrist, Uh but she's, you know, science itself shows that we were designed to bond. So there's meant to be that, you know, the integration of the body and the person. Uh That's what that's what these bonding hormones show that you can't separate yourself from your body. Because even your hormones are being, you know, elicited by by your actions. Mm -hmm. And so science is on our side here. We shouldn't put up with people saying that there's some kind of clash between religion and science. Mm. All of these issues, science is on our side. Yes what's interesting is
1: we're talking about the secular view of these issues, but I've heard these same arguments within the church. I went to seminary, a very progressive seminary here, here in Atlanta for my MDiv. And I've heard these same sorts of arguments being made within the fold of the church, which is fascinating considering how body focused our gospel is. When we yeah. really look at it, like Jesus was persecuted in his physical body, died, his physical body rose from the dead, And he is still embodied. Like, I think about that so often. Like, when I think of Christ, I think of an embodied person at the right hand of God. And the fact that God's promise is predicated on our physical bodies being made whole again. And we want to do away with our bodies. It's crazy.
0: Exactly. I mean, the the most important thing we do, we can do, is just recover our own heritage. I, I often start with the early church because it was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that also devalued the body. Mm. For very different reasons, but they saw the material world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction. Platonism, Gnosticism, all of these isms said that this world, the material world, is, is evil even, and that the goal of salvation is to escape the physical world. And so the early church presented a message that was absolutely revolutionary because it said this world was created by the supreme god, not, not some evil god, but a supreme god who is a good god, and therefore it's intrinsically good. And the fall doesn't abrogate that. But this is important, too, because I, I meet Christians who think, well, well, yeah, that was, that was creation, but now we live in a fallen world. You should think of the fall like a great, beautiful, artistic masterpiece, and a child comes with magic marker and, and scribbles on it. Well, yeah, it defaces it, but the mm-hmm. original beauty still shines through. You can mm-hmm. still see that it's a masterpiece. That's how we should think wow. of creation. And then in the first century, do you realize that the greater scandal actually was the incarnation? Because they were saying that same supreme deity had entered into the material world. And so the incarnation is the greatest affirmation of the dignity and value of the human body. And then you're right. You've already jumped ahead of me because then I go to the crucifixion where, well, you might say Jesus did escape his physical body, which is what the Gnostics said we should aspire to do. But then what did he do next? (laughs) He comes back you know, right. in a physical body. To right. the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. You know, that's why Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the resurrection of the body was foolishness to the Greeks. Mm. They literally argued, well, who would want to come back to the realm of the body? Right. Right. And then, of course, uh, the what, what's God going to do at the end of time? He's not going to scrap the physical world as if he made a mistake mm-hmm. the first time around. He's going to renew it and restore it. We will be part of that new creation. Mm-hmm. We've lost, I think, a lot of our sense of the incredibly high view that Christianity has of the physical world. There's no other religion or philosophy that has anything like it. Mm-hmm. And so we should be out there, you know, with a positive message, first of all. Yeah. I, I have had a few Christians question me on that. I even had a Christian philosopher mm-hmm. who wrote a, re- a review of my book and said, oh, Nancy's wrong. Uh, Because she's saying the the materialist uh, has a low view of the body, right? And she said, no, no, they have an exalted view of the body. They have too high a view of the body. To which my response is, they think the physical world is all that exists, but that does not mean it has high value. Mm. If it really is a product of mindless, purposeless material forces, it does not have any high dignity or value. So you can be a materialist and think the physical world is all that exists without Mm. thinking that it has high value Mm-hmm. So that's the key, you know, my argument, my whole argument rests on, well, actually, <laughs> actually they have a low view mm-hmm. and it's Christianity that has a high view of the physical world. Because of the purpose of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's intentionally created. It's not just some random product of random <laughs> forces. Uh-huh. You know, mindless, purposeless. No, there's a mind, there's a will, there's intention, there's purpose, there's mm-hmm. design. We're people who can live as if our lives have incredible meaning. hmm In a way that the secular person just can't.
1: Right. And that meaning also, in many ways, extending to these categories of male and female, which we believe are created by God, which brings us to the toxic masculinity. So your book is called The Toxic War. The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Love this title. I think upon hearing this title, many people will probably roll their eyes and say, there's no war on masculinity. You know, there's one war and it's led by men. Against women. And I think what's so key about this book is you distinguish between the secular script for masculinity, which can and does harm women. Like you don't say, oh, no, 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 you know, you were a feminist for years. You're very aware of inequality and how it plays out to this day. But you distinguish between the secular script for masculinity with all of its many problems. And God's actual design for masculinity. Can you parse this out a bit? Like, what is actual toxic male behavior? And what is Christ's response to that behavior?
0: Well, what I think is interesting is it doesn't take a Christian to see this. You, you're right that this book has has been um, the most controversial book I've written, which actually yeah. surprised me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I mean, I did think Love Thy Body would be more controversial because it Mm -hmm. does deal with homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion. But at least in the Christian world, this one's been more controversial. When it was still in manuscript form, I taught classes, I led reading groups because I like to get lots of feedback. Mm -hmm. And when they told their friends and family that that we were going through a book on masculinity, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? You know, with that tone. And then the next question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? Men tended to assume that I was some male-bashing feminist, mm-hmm. but more progressive types tended to assume I was a defensive, angry culture warrior. And so I put this study right at the front of the book because it says you don't have to be for or against. You know, There are different scripts out there for masculinity. right? And, and even secular people see it. This was a study done by a sociologist who's who's not a Christian. He gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this very clever experiment where he asked young men two questions. First, he asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, if you're at a funeral and then in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? Mm. And the sociologist said young men all around the globe had no trouble answering that. Mm. Immediately, they would start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. And the sociologists would say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Mm. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Then he would follow up with a second question. And he'd say, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man said, no, no, that's completely different. Mm. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up. Um, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. (laughs) And so the sociologists concluded that young men around the world all have, they feel trapped in a sense between these two competing scripts, that they intrinsically, inherently know what it means to be a good man. It's universal. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you could call it a general revelation. You know, the truths that we know just from being made in God's image, living in God's world, um, in contrast to special revelation, which is the Bible, it seems that through general revelation, men do know that their unique masculine strengths are not given them just to get whatever they want, but mm-hmm. to protect, provide, take care of the people that they love. Right. But they also are feeling this, this other script, the, the quote unquote real man, which does include traits that we might consider more toxic, especially if they're disconnected from a moral vision. Yeah, um, they can it can slide into entitlement, dominance, control and so on, exploitation. So I thought that this was really encouraging on the one hand, because it does show, well, when we ask men to live up to a biblical ethic, we're not imposing anything alien on them. Right. You know, this is not contrary to the male character. Mm-hmm. They are made in God's image and their deepest aspiration is to be the good man. But then we have to help them maybe think through a little more critically, you know, the secular script that their culture is giving them. Uh, and so f- instead of accusing men of being toxic, which they don't respond very well to <laughs> right now,
1: <laughs> when you have talked to men about this, are they aware of how secularism, like Christian men, when you talk to Christian men about this, are they aware of how the secular script has impacted their own?
0: Well, the feedback I get from uh, readers is uh, you helped me to uh, think through that a little bit. <laughs> I realized I had absorbed a lot of things from my culture. But I'll give you an example. I got an email recently from a former graduate student who now teaches at a high school, and she said all my male students are into Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate, you know, uh, presents somewhat of a picture that is, is attracting young men because he's, he's you know he's he's athletic, he's fit. He talks about um, you know getting rich, being successful. Yeah. But what they don't realize many times, it, it's coming out because of the lawsuit, that he got rich by. Uh, having an OnlyFans business, Mm. that he manages girls who do OnlyFans, which he admits is pornography. I've seen him on an interview where he he says, yes, I am essentially producing pornography, and he called himself a pimp. So this is clearly a very secular model for masculinity. I was talking to my graduate student, and she said, all my my male students are into Andrew Tate. And then I said, where do you teach? She said, at a classical Christian school. Wow. And I thought, OK, <laughs> our young men are being drawn to some of these influencers who, you know, are giving them a model of what they think is masculine strength, but it's highly immoral. And so I, I like the way that you put your question, which is, you know, maybe we, we do need to help Christian men think, think more critically yeah. about the secular script that's out there. Absolutely. Um, because I think it's actually gaining strength. To people like Andrew Tate.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what's so sad is when this very secular, very ungodly masculine script is read as Christian by non-Christians. And you do talk about this in your book. You talk about how the evangelical Christian man became exhibit A of this toxic masculinity. So like what even is that? How did that happen?
0: Yeah, well, what's really challenging for us as Christians is that we have two groups, two very different groups. So, yes, on the one hand, yeah, it was very easy to find examples of people claiming that any view of male headship in the home is going to turn men into these overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs. Mm -hmm. I'll give you just one. So this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too Mm -hmm. movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So, what happened is the social scientists were listening to this, you know, psychologists, sociologists who are Christian, and they're saying, You're making these accusations, but where's your evidence? Mm-hmm. You know, you're raising these charges, but where's your data? Mm-hmm. So, they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I quote some dozen or so studies, finding that evangelical Christian men who are committed and attend church regularly actually test out as the most loving husbands and fathers. Mm. Their wives test out as reporting the highest level of happiness with their husband's expression of love and affection. They spend more time with their kids than any other group, uh, 3.5 hours more than secular Mm. fathers. They divorce at a lower rate than any other group, uh, 35% lower than secular couples. And then the real surprise is they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. Mm. And so actually... It was reading this that made me decide, I have to write this book, Mm -hmm. because I was finding this in the professional social science literature. You know, I had to go digging in journals, academic journals to find it. I thought, wow, we need to get that out. You know, the church needs to know that really committed Christian men are doing a good job. But of course, the pushback I, I always get is, aren't Christians divorcing at the same rate as the rest of the culture? So the researchers went back to the data and they made that crucial distinction between men who do attend church regularly versus those who identify as evangelical but are nominal. Mm -hmm. uh, Nominal, I have to tell my students this, N-O-M is Latin for name, so it means in name only. Mm -hmm. And so these are men who will claim to be evangelical and maybe even check the the Baptist box on a survey, but they attend church rarely, if at all. Mm -hmm. And they actually test out with all the toxic stereotypes. This is what's stunning. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They right. spend the least amount of time with their children. Mm. They divorce at higher rates than even the secular world, 20% higher. And they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence. So, this is what we're up against. That, you know, if you just use the label evangelical, you're going to get men who are better than secular men, but you are going to get men who are worse than mm-hmm. secular men. And this is what the church is up against. I would say, you know, how do we, on the one hand, support the men who are doing well. Mm -hmm. How do we reach out effectively to these nominal men who are, you know, as as you mentioned, you know, in a sense, they're the ones who are creating the stereotype that evangelical men are toxic Mm -hmm. because they are toxic. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I have been asked sometimes, but why would they be even worse than secular men? And it appears because, you know, they're taking biblical words like headship and submission, but they're not giving them the biblical meaning. They're infusing it with secular meanings, you know, from the secular script for masculinity. But then they feel religious justification for being that way. And mm. then ends up even being worse than secular men. Mm. Mm. So mm. how do we disciple these men? You know, how do we get a handle on that and, and help them to understand that what they're doing, their understanding of things like headship is not biblical.
1: Right. So interesting. You know, I, I'm always thinking as a non-believer, mostly because my... Ministry is geared towards those who have questions. And, you know, part of the hope is to give them these first person accounts of what God has done and is doing. As a non believer hearing these stats, I might think, okay, well, these truly Christian couples are divorcing at lower rates because they feel they can't divorce or. You know they the women are reporting more satisfaction because they feel they can't complain or you know these sorts of things. What do you think it is about a man who is truly walking in the ways outlined and instructed by Christ? What is it that makes that sort of marriage different?
0: Yeah, so the, the sociologists admit that there can be a rose-colored glasses effect to some degree. Mm-hmm. You know that might affect it a little bit. The rose glasses, in other words, what rose-colored glasses means, you know, I'm supposed to be happy. <laughs> I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to be happy. Right. But they, d- they don't think it covers all of it. And here's the interesting thing. This is part of the reason the book has been controversial. Two of my top researchers say that uh, it has nothing to do with the husband's gender theory. In other words, um, my book has been attacked by egalitarians who say I'm giving ammunition to complementarians. And then it's been attacked by complementarians who say, I'm giving ammunition. They use the same mm-hmm. word. I'm giving mm-hmm. ammunition to the egalitarians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the irony is, I say point blank in the book that I'm not even engaging that debate. I'm looking at the attacks from the secular world. So one of my top researchers is Brad Wilcox. He's a sociologist at the University of Virginia. He says, you know, in my research, I'm just not finding a difference based on the husband's gender theory. You know, whether he's complementarian or egalitarian. He even did a study specifically on egalitarian couples, and he reports they don't seem meant to be any happier, but he said they don't test out any happier. What does make a difference? The husband's commitment to the family as the center of his life. If he has a family-centric philosophy that the family's ordained by God, and you know he wants to make his family work, he found that that correlated with a good family, a successful marriage more than anything else. And I thought, well, there you go. And I said, here's why I'm not even going to deal with complementarian versus egalitarian. And then, as soon as my book came out, it was attacked by both sides. <laughs> mm-hmm. They they couldn't they couldn't not let it be about that. <laughs> yeah, I believe it.
1: I mean, you, one could say like, well, any husband could learn how to respect his wife and whatnot. But I think that the especially Paul's words on on marriage as well as the metaphor we have of Christ and the church provides such a strong foundation that isn't really questionable of how a husband is meant to treat. Like you can't get much more sacrificial than a husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. You can't get much more radical in terms of the love you expect a husband to offer his wife. So there's that. I love the way that you are pushing both sides. I said at the top of the interview. What I love is that you piss off people on both sides. So I'd love to end this interview talking about political correctness. And what I think is tough is that often the anti-political correct, the anti-PC, anti-quote woke crowd can be deemed uncompassionate. And perhaps that is sometimes because of actual maltreatment, actual unkind behavior. But I would say, I'll speak for both of us, we don't fit into that category. I would say we're just both critical thinkers. So how would you define political correctness first, and how does it operate? And what are the consequences of that?
0: Well, I'll give you a, a recent example. I noticed this news tabloid from Australia, and it had a seven year old boy on the front. In large type was the title, and it said, How do we stop this kid from becoming a monster? And underneath it was, Schools need to address the problem of toxic masculinity. And I thought, what kind of ideology teaches parents that your kid could become a monster? That's too far. When Mm -hmm. you start taking seven-year-old kids and indoctrinating them with the idea that, you know, if you don't look out, you're going to turn into a monster. I have two boys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm kind of sensitized to this. Here's the deal. It is true that boys are falling behind. This might be part of the anti-woke thing. It's, It's time to recognize that, you know, up until now, we've really wanted to promote girls. And that's great. Girls and women, you know, like in education, that Title IX or the 1994 Gender Equity Act, which poured millions of dollars into equity workshops and curriculum and so on to encourage girls. Well, it worked (laughs) because now girls are rushing ahead and doing great. And that's wonderful. But boys are falling behind. So the average college is 60-40, 60% female, 40% male. Graduate school, now more women than men. And even life expectancy has gone down. Women's has stayed the same. But men's life expectancy in recent years has gone down to the point where one magazine that I read called The New Scientist said the major demographic factor in early death now is being male. So I do think it's time. This is kind of the anti-war perspective is it's time to say it's great to have special programs for girls but maybe it's about time to have some special programs to encourage boys you know with their slightly different learning styles and their slightly different temperament maybe they need programs that are geared for them um yeah so
1: you see as a consequence of that political correctness is just like the neglect almost of these groups that we identify as being privileged is that kind of how you
0: say Yeah isn't that interesting because uh, the first one of the first pushbacks like that as well. We don't need anything special for boys because they end up on top anyway. Well, it is true that perhaps the top five to ten percent of, of, you know, presidents and Hollywood film producers and CEOs and so on. Yeah. Yes, that is still true. But what it's hiding is on average, men have gotten worse on all the t- all the things I mentioned, education, health, employment and so on. On average, men have actually gotten worse. Yeah. And so that's the That's why we need to say, well, it's not going to help society. If men slide into despair, uh, like I said, suicide now has gone way up. And most of them are what psychologists call deaths of despair. A lot of them is, is, you know, drug overdoses and so on, deaths of despair. So we we all suffer when men are doing poorly.
1: Hmm. It's kind of like the racism is bad for everyone (laughs) statement. It's like, yeah, it's it's not going to help us if one segment of society is failing here. Well, yeah, good point. final question. I said that was going to be my final question, but I'd love to just return actually to the top of the episode where you talked about your healing. How would you describe, because you know, I would, in talking to you would never imagine that you were once, I hate men, you know, <laughs> what, what did God do in your heart? How did he heal you to be able to see so clearly with such compassion and in such a godly way, instead of leading with your pain, leading with the hurt you experienced?
0: Um, It is lifelong. It it tends to go in periods like time at Labrie uh, with that psychiatric social worker was a huge start with experiencing God's love. But, you know, people always say it's like an onion. You heal one later and there's another one and then there's another one. And so it has, in fact, been a lifelong process. I'm nowadays, instead of always reading some feminist book, I'm always reading some book on psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I still do a lot of reading on the subject, but it was very helpful then to read both secular and Christian books on healing. And I have to admit, when I had, uh, I was leading reading reading groups and so on, a lot of people have not experienced the kind of severe abuse that I have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they didn't quite understand. And they would say, well, shouldn't you be showing more grace? shouldn't you be practicing more forgiveness and so of course i say yes you start there mm-hmm. <laughs> of mm-hmm. course you start there most of us do need to learn how to show more grace and forgiveness okay but mm-hmm. if somebody's truly sinning against you often women have been forgiving for many long years and they yeah. have finally figured out no just one adult cannot control another adult by being nice to them yeah it doesn't work and so I was very glad that there are a number of good books out there now that empower the woman. And of course, it's not always the woman. Sometimes it is a man. But numerically speaking, statistically speaking, it's more likely to be the woman. Just because men are bigger and stronger, right? So certainly mm-hmm. if there's physical abuse, it's usually a, a, a man who's committing it. So there are good resources out there now. And so the answer is, I I keep healing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never, It's never quite completely finished. Francis Schaeffer used to use the term, this side of heaven, this side yeah. of heaven, there's never complete healing. If you try to have perfection, you know, you'll get frustrated and you'll give up. So mm-hmm. He used to call it substantial healing, not perfect healing, mm-hmm. substantial healing in this life or this side of heaven. We can hope for substantial healing. It's yeah. never completely healed.
1: Yeah. 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 Um. God be with you in that process. And I thank you for not just sitting with it yourself and healing alone, but also passing that on to others and speaking these words and writing these books that are, I think, storming the gates of hell. You know, these issues are truly, I mean, they've swallowed our culture. And so I think it's really powerful that you are not speaking only to the church of like, how should we respond to these secular ideas? But you're speaking back to the secular culture and saying, no, here is what our God has said. So, Thank you. And thank you for being here with me today.
0: Yes. And thanks for seeing that. Like I said, I've had to be fighting with people who would just want to keep it as an in-house debate. An awful lot of Christians just do not have that perspective of our job is to speak to the secular world. Mm -hmm. So thank you Mm -hmm. that you understand that. And um, you know, that you understand that that's what I'm trying to do.
1: Yeah. And you're doing it well. So thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. And, I would urge any listeners to go grab a copy of The Toxic War on Masculinity How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. It's a very timely, very, very timely text. And I hope it will continue to shake up some stuff in our culture because we really need an awakening right now.